Hello, how you doing? This is Dr. D coming to you live with the Boom Factor, which stands for Believers Overcome with Unlimited Manifestation. I'm so excited you stopped by. You are literally tuned in to my live audio diary of my life with mental and spiritual support to help you sustain your life from the inside out. I represent independent artists, entrepreneurs, self-published authors, ministers, missionaries. Whatever issues that you deal with that you may think that nobody have dealt with, just tune in. Dr. D probably have touched on it and went through it. So come on, share my link, and I appreciate you taking time out to download the free app. And if you have something else you want to discuss, just leave me a message. Until then, be blessed. and rubber bullets in Minneapolis. Days of fury after 46-year-old George Floyd died while Officer Derek Chauvin was seen kneeling on his neck for almost nine minutes. Taking the life of George Floyd with his hands in his pockets, looking out in that way, it was apparent to me that he did not think anything would happen to him. And that is a failure of law. streets you need to understand that the way to stop that is to address the root cause which is the over policing and racism that is levied on black americans educate yourself and know who you're voting for and that's how we're gonna hit them what's his name george floyd what's his name george floyd what's his name hey everyone i'm tremaine lee Black death at the hands of police and white vigilantes dates back long before cell phone videos and social media feeds delivered hashtags of black pain. But the recent killings of Ahmaud Arbery in Georgia, Breonna Taylor in Kentucky, and George Floyd in Minnesota have ignited old kindling. It's a fire that's been burning slowly in black America, while much of the rest of society has closed their eyes and covered their ears. But now... We're at a crossroads. Anger, rage, and grief are spilling across the country with black people once again demanding equality, demanding justice, and demanding to be heard. The deaths, senseless and violent, and the uprising are reminders of just how far we have to go, how much healing we have to do, and how alone the struggle for justice often feels. This is Can You Hear Us Now? A conversation about race, justice, and a way forward. To unpack this moment, I'm joined by Brittany Packnett Cunningham, activist and co-founder of Campaign Zero. Nicole Hannah-Jones, Pulitzer Prize winner and staff writer at the New York Times Magazine. And Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin, Mandela Barnes. Nicole, I want to start with you. It's been a really rough, really heavy week for many of us. Um, especially those who are on the ground or from the black community. But I want to ask you, why does this time feel different? Why does this time feel so personal? I think there are a few things. And hey, Tremaine, um, one, it was the the sheer nature of this particular uh, police killing to see a man 
laying on face down on the concrete as a white law enforcement officer kneels on him for eight minutes and 46 seconds until the life literally seeps out of him. And the look on that officer's face as he knows he's being recorded, uh, showing that he had no concern, no concern. either for George Floyd's life or that there would be any consequences. So just the, the nature of this particular killing. And then you have to stack that on top of the fact that it's coming uh, on the heels of Ahmaud Arbery, on the heels of Rihanna Taylor, um, and in the midst of three years of a president who ran on a white nationalist campaign who has spent the last three years stoking racial tensions and divides, that we're in the middle of a pandemic where black people have been dying at the highest rates, but also have, are facing the highest rates of unemployment in the country. Um, there's just so much suffering and anguish and anger right now, and it all came together in a very combustible way. Uh, I think, you know, what you're calling this special is critical. Can you see us now? Black people are tired of having to invisibly bear this pain. Brittany, as an activist, you've been on the ground, city by city. We actually met on the streets of Ferguson during that uprising. I want to ask you, there is great pain on one side, uh, but also great rage and anger. And we've seen that spill across the country in a way we haven't seen in prior cases. Why now? What about this latest case of George Floyd sparked this way? Well, I think we have to recognize the important impact of black activism, black organizing, black scholarship, black writing, black art, black content creation in all forms to bring us to this point. Back in 2014, we did not have the data. We did not have the research. We did not have the policy set up in such a way that it could be easily accessed and socialized on not just how systemic violence impacts black people, but specifically how police violence impacts black people. Um, when we look at Nicole's project, the 1619 project, there has been a continual awakening of America and a, a, a depth of understanding that people have. And I want to be really clear, the work that black activists like myself have done over the last six years is not new, just like these challenges are not new. Black people have been writing and talking and working and organizing for this since we have been in this country. And yet I do believe that there is an intentional dragging that black people have been doing in all of our various fields to bring people to a point where they are more clear, more ready, have better understanding, and most importantly, see their own behavior as complicit in systems that they benefit from. And therefore, it's their behavior that has to change in order to shift this. Mandela, you are the Lieutenant Governor of Wisconsin, but you're also a black man. After these last two weeks that we've seen, and the protests we've seen. What concerns you more? As a black man, the state of race relations and where we are right now, or as a politician um, who, who cares for the well-being of your, states and your state and your constituents? I'm mostly concerned about the people that still don't get it. We still got a whole lot of comfortable politicians, a whole lot of people in elected office who aren't ready to move yet, who aren't ready to take on this challenge. And as we said before, this this didn't just pop up out of nowhere. This is like volcanic activity. It took a long while for us to get to this point. But people have been get, able to get away uh, with running for office. Now I'm in Wisconsin. We're a six and a half percent black state. These are still issues that I carry because they impact everybody. And for those who thought that we could ignore this for so long are seeing firsthand that that's not the case. And 
it comes it means we have to develop a plan it means getting out in front and like uh nicole mentioned earlier we have a president who's just exacerbated these racial racial tensions making people feel unwelcome making people uh feel like they don't have a shot in this society so as long as that goes on these things are going to continue to get worse but we have a uh, we are in a pivotal moment where we can address this head on where we can say no more not again and as elected leaders, it's up to us to do that. It's imperative for us to do that, no matter where you reside. You can be bold in any state in the country. You can be bold in any city in America. But if you don't act, you see the result of it. And that's not what we want. I want to bring in actor Don Cheadle. Uh, Don, there's no doubt that we have a society that's largely cleaved along race and class lines. And I want to ask you personally, uh, when did you first really understand that there's often a difference in the way that black and white people live and die in America? Well, you know, unfortunately, these are things that as black people, we learn very early uh, from our parents uh, how to come home safe, the way to comport yourself when you deal with law enforcement, uh, the things that you have to do uh, so that you can just return home uh, in one piece. So this is something that was, you know, put into my psyche personally and all of my friends' psyche that are black men and women from childhood. Um, and it is continued throughout uh, my adulthood. You know, I, I, I lived in L.A. during the riots um, here in uh, 1982. And I have seen every aspect of this uh, come along. Uh, and I have personally, you know, I, I know a lot of dudes, a lot of a lot of people that are in the streets, a lot of people that are in neighborhoods, a lot of gang affiliated folk. I've never had guns pulled on me by any of them, but I've had guns pulled on me by the LAPD under the Daryl Gates Hammer program countless times. Uh, have my life threatened countless times for doing nothing, for walking down the street. And this is a systemic, institutionalized problem that we are all now fully aware of. Some of us have known for many, many years. Um, and we are seeing the watershed moment once again. I mean, we should not have these names that we can just repeat by rote. We should not be able to know all of Philando Castile, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Aubrey. We should, these things should not be burned into our consciousness. But thankfully, now that we have film and we have cell phones and we have pictures that are you know, speaking a thousand words, this is something that can no longer be hidden. And this can't be swept under a rug. And my fervent prayer and hope is that this energy and this outrage that we feel right now, yeah. we can use to follow those who have been organizing in these spaces for many, many years. And we can, you know, glean some understanding on how to bring whatever we have to bear on this issue to the front right now. Nicole, the experience that Don's talking about, um, of these, the seeds of this going back to childhood, that you're raised not necessarily in fear of your neighbor, but your neighborhood police, that there is concern from the very early age that you know somehow things are different, that maybe you are different in some way, or the world sees you in a different way. Talk to me about growing up. Was there a moment when you realized that things were literally different, different, literally in black and white? Um, yeah, I almost can't remember a time where I didn't know that. Um, 
I started getting bused from my black neighborhood and my neighborhood school to white school starting in the second grade. Uh, my parents thought that was the best thing to do for me to get a uh, proper education. And you could see the landscape change through the school bus window. Once we started leaving the black side of town, all of a sudden the housing got nicer. The roads were um, fixed. There were parks. There were nice uh, restaurants and places to shop. And so even as a kid, I recognized that there was a very big difference between how people live on the black side of town versus the white side of town. But I also saw the narrative about why that was, was it true? Because the folks in my neighborhood were some of the hardest working people that I knew. They worked the type of jobs that uh, people on the other side wouldn't even last in. So I've, I've noticed these differences and thought about these differences really almost as long as I can remember. It's almost in many ways as if we oscillate in completely separate universes. And, and Brittany, I want to ask you, uh, there are probably many white people watching right now who want to better understand uh, the nature of injustice in America, the nature of inequality in this country, and quite frankly, the nature of black pain, to tap into it just a little bit. Uh, but talk to me, when explaining black trauma to white people, does that exacerbate the very trauma that you're trying to explain in the first place? Is it a necessary step to push for change? Of course it exacerbates the trauma that we face. This unfortunately is precisely how oppression functions. That so often the people who are the most affected by the oppression are the ones who bear the greatest responsibility and the heaviest burden to actually correcting that oppression. This is precisely why we can't waste this moment. I see a lot of black folks who are rightfully looking at non-black people and saying, this is not just my job and primarily it is your job. If you benefit from the systems of white supremacy and white privilege, if you benefit from systems of anti-blackness, then it is your primary responsibility to dismantle them. You have to remove your tacit approval. You have to remove the, the willingness to allow these systems to persist simply because they keep you comfortable. The fact of the matter is we're all sitting here having this conversation while we're dealing with a mountain of emotions. We are trying to parent through this. We are trying to love our spouses through this. We are trying to heal our own trauma through this. We are trying to manage how much we do and don't tell other people because every single time we have to tell these stories, there is an additional rise in emotion. And we're dealing with all of this in the midst of other crises. We are also trying to keep our people safe from coronavirus, which is killing us more disproportionately. And why? Because the injustices that black people have always experienced are exacerbated in this moment. So bad housing, bad education, technology gaps, bad medical outcomes, health disparities, uh, low wages, all of those things are, are, all of those things are increasing right now in, in our lives and in our experience. So we're having this conversation right now to make sure, yes, that people can see and hear us now, but recognize that for all of us talking and for all of the black people watching, this is an additional exercise in that trauma. So you have to ask yourself, if you are not black, how will you continue to keep yourself on this work and in this work without us having to continue to expend our energy and our precious resources? Yeah, if I could add to that, Brittany. I would... I would love to see uh, a panel, uh, NBC host a panel of white Americans talking about what they plan to do to address yeah. the issues that are leading yeah. black folks to be in the streets right now. 100%. And, and I, I imagine that everybody on this panel has probably gotten calls from their white friends and white allies who are asking these great questions. 
and haven't done the research themselves. They're coming to us like we're supposed to be, you know, the encyclopedia Negranica. And it's like, what, what have you done? What have you looked into? Have you done any stock in your own life? Where do you have, you know, any influence in your community, at your job, in your church, at your school? There are multiple places that you guys could be starting this conversation and not, as you're saying, Nicole, once again, bringing this trauma to us to please expect us to somehow assuage this. It's like, get on these front lines with us. Get down with us. Let's go. You do this. I think it's 100%. In fact, get on the front line in front of us. In front of us. You know, I was going to say, it's people people that are going through childhood, school, and professional life and have never had to worry about this and have shown no concern. And now, as adults, ask us, what can we do to help? That's not a a me question. That's a you question. Yeah. Brittany, I want to thank you for your time, my friend. Uh, you always putting out putting out that work, and you're also on TV. Uh, we know you're busy, so thank you very much. Thank you. Mandela, there have been two distinct scenes playing out all across the country. One is of peaceful protesters with chants and signs demanding justice for George Floyd and others. The other is of broken glass and flames and fire and damaged buildings. I want to ask you this, Mandela. Is what we're seeing in whole, is it a riot or is it rebellion? What's up, what's up, what's up, you guys? Good morning. This is Dr. D with the Boom Factor coming to you live, filling in you guys on more information from other uh, activists, from other newscasters besides the regular CBS, NBC, and ABC because they all saying the same thing and showing the same, same thing. So... I want to always expose my audience to a variety of dialogues so we can understand and really see what is really happening. And as um, Tremaine Lee was asking um, Ms. Modella about what's going on now, the riot or is it a rebellion or revolution, uh, it's both. It's both. You, 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 as I stated in my in the episode last week when all this the uproar began, I don't agree with the looting. I don't agree with the violence and the burning down. But however, you have to look at this as a pressure cooker for a certain group of people that has been humbly going on with their lives and still trying to deal with these issues that nobody don't want to deal with in the political realm, in the hierarchy realm. So the next episode, we're going to hear the dialogue between the activists and you'll be hearing some of the things that's been going on through these the protests because most of them have been peaceful okay most of most majority of the protests have been peaceful and it's been beautiful i mean i weep when i see it and get emotional but then it's beautiful because you have all 
the beautiful, beautiful rainbow of colors coming together, standing up to say Black Lives Matter. We know all lives matter, but we got to really look at this in a more spiritual and in the underlying of everything that that happened. And I believe that God exposes stuff for a reason and for a time and a season. And there's two things that he revealed with the Amy Cooper situation, how she just tapped into her white privilege drama mode to call the police on a black man that was not even attacking her like she was saying on the phone. And the all-out murder, the 21st century lynching of a black man that was already in compliance, already in handcuffs, already face down. And you literally, you literally took another man's life for what? So this is what we dealing with and, and how they say we in a new world and a new, the new normal. And, and, and this is going to be a discussion continually. So, I'm going to go ahead and go to the next episode and so we can hear the distinguish about the riots and, and uh, some want to call it rebellious. Our own administration want to call, call the protest thugs and want to activate all these other laws from the past. And you trying to bring that in the 21st century? That's not going to work, dude. Because <laughs> first of all, Native Blacks, Americans, have progressed to the point where you can't just go, and we still see it a little, but it's changing. It's changing, and it will change. But before I go into the next rant, y'all go ahead, um, stay tuned to the next episode. We're going to hear the dialogue on how things are abruptly right now. <laughs> it's frustration. It's Thank you. Mandela, there have been two distinct scenes playing out all across the country. One is of peaceful protesters with chants and signs demanding justice for George Floyd and others. The other is of broken glass and flames and fire and damaged buildings. I want to ask you this, Mandela, is what we're seeing in whole, is it a riot or is it rebellion? It's frustration. It's frustration. People, you can't you can't tell people how to be frustrated. And like, I, I go back to the same point over and over again. This didn't come out of nowhere. Folks didn't just wake up and decide that we're going to break some glass. We're going to set some things on fire. So on one hand, you have the protests that are sending the message directly to leadership, making demands, very specific demands. And you have people uh, who are doing damage. Uh, however, the, the question always comes up, well, when are the uh, protesters, when are the activists, organizers going to hold uh, the people that are doing damage accountable 
Well, the fact is that uh, organizers are just pushing for accountability as well because that goes to the good cop, bad cop argument. When are good cops going to hold bad cops accountable? We're all looking for the same thing. So more than than, uh, damage, destruction, and rebellion, it is frustration. And it didn't get this way out of nowhere. The onus falls on on all elected leadership, all decision makers who failed to address the crisis when before it got to this point. Thank you. So we've been getting submissions from black people all around the country, and they've been telling us why they're out there protesting, protesting for George Floyd. This is what Guy Barnes from Washington, D.C. had to say. He said, being black, gay and active duty, I've seen my fair share of injustices. Our beauty is in our diversity, but our power is in our unity. I march so that the death of George Floyd and countless others, known and unknown, will not be in vain. Nicole, we've had many conversations about black death and struggle and protest, and we've had this conversation many times before. Uh, But in this moment, with all the passion and the pain, do you believe that any of this, the demonstrations, the protests, the panels with esteemed black panelists, will actually push us any closer to meaningful change? Um, I hate to try to predict what's going to happen in the future because I think it's hard to tell. What I will say is um, the last time we've had this many uprisings in this many cities for this sustained period of time would have probably been around 1968 with the assassination of Martin Luther King. And what actually came from that was the passage of the Fair Housing Act. The Fair Housing Act had been on life support. It had been filibustered for several years and everyone thought it was going to go down in flames again. And it was was these uprisings with the Capitol building being guarded by the National Guard that forced Congress to pass that fair housing legislation that it had refused to pass prior. So I guess what I'm saying is people say that these types of uprisings are only destructive and can never lead to positive change. But it is possible that when you've seen this type of property damage, when you've seen this type of sustained uh, protest going on in all of these cities across the country, that elected officials will be forced to pay attention and actually do something uh, to hold police accountable for the way that they treat citizens. What this really is about is people who want to be respected, to be treated with dignity, and to have equal protection before the law. Don, you said you have experience uh, going through L.A., and we've seen Ferguson, and we've seen Mike Brown, and we've seen Freddie Gray. We've seen it all. Pushed and pushed and pushed, and a lot of hue and cry. But little seems to change. Do you expect this time to be different? Are we at a pivot point where where maybe this time meaningful change might be on the horizon? Uh, uh, I think I have to uh, piggyback on what Nicole said and and say it is possible. Um, but I know that all the forces are struggling to protect the institutionalized racism and the systematic injustice that has got us here. So it's not going to it's not going to be easy, especially especially with this uh, leadership. And I use that word incredibly loosely that we have uh, at the top that is just fomenting the unrest and, you know, taking the opportunity to to, to do photo ops <laughs> with a Bible in his hand uh, after he's tear gassed and rubber bulleted people out of the way so he can look strong. I mean, this is the most craven 
uh, sort of leadership that we have. When you have George you Will read the Bible, talking about the, the uh, the enablers that are allowing this to continue, that gamble around the president's feet like a pack of dogs uh, hungry for petting. I mean, when you have George Will saying that, then we're talking about a 360 uh, awareness of what it is that we're uh, pushing upstream against. So, yes, it's possible. And from you know the ashes of this conflict can come great change, but it's not going to happen if we rest. It's not going to happen if we don't get behind the people that have been doing the work uh, thus far and, and, and learn how to take this energy and organize, learn how to take this energy and put it into voting, uh, to put it into you know filling out your census, to put it into making sure that you are seen and heard in ways that we can make ourselves seen and heard that we don't always take advantage of. We have to take advantage of all the ways that all the levers of power right now and not let this momentum die. Because another thing that we know as being human beings in this thing, we've seen it in 92, we've seen it, like you said, in 68, it's a cyclical thing and it can lose steam. We can only continue and hold this for so long. We get weary. We get tired, we get broken down, our immune systems can't take it. Not to mention we're in the middle of a pandemic, as we said before. We don't have endless stores of energy to do this. We have to do this now while it is still fresh, while we're still right. passionate, while we're still right. out there in the streets. That's we right. have to do it right now. Coming up, we're on the ground in Minneapolis with a look at what protesters on the ground are calling for. Stay with us. Why am I here? Because this is this is our life. We gotta fight for it. Nobody else will. We have to. We will not fall for any anything. We gotta stand, and we gotta stand united. Tear gas, and they were doing everything. No, I'm not. I'm not. I live in. I I would have to live in fear every day if I did. No. No, you can't walk in fear. Because if you walk in fear, you're not gonna be here. Okay, in the midst of this um, break, Dr. D with this episode on what are, what do you want to see change in your community? How you can make a change in your community? First of all, no matter what state you're in, no matter what state you're in, what city, get on that computer and Google your zip code. And find out who represent your zip code. And you're going to have a whole list. All the way from the community leaders, your representatives, the councilmen, uh, legislator, your, your state representative, your governor, your mayor. It goes all the way up to the Congress. Okay? Write those names down. You can go to their website. Each, each individual, each individual that's on the list underneath your zip code, okay? Click on that link and it'll take you straight to their website. And on their website, they have, hi, I am your da-da-da-da, and I am here to do da-da-da for you. And they're going to have all 
you can go just look through it and it's going to tell you all the different cases, concerns, everything, and what they promise to do for who they represent. And you click and go to contact and then they want you to contact them. Contact them and let them know you have a concern in your community with police violence or discrimination, whatever you have a concern for, write it down and send them that email. And while you're waiting for their response, because they will send you a response. They will they will acknowledge you. You print that out and you get you a a, a list. I forgot what they call it. Pro, uh, uh, not uh, <laughs> a protest list. Petition. Start your petition and find and get signatures. Let people know, okay, this is what's going on in our community and I need, would you like to sign a petition so I can bring it forth? Uh, to the committee, yada, yada, yada. That's how we can keep this momentum going, you guys. And when you see them signs on the side of those mediums on the road, neighborhood, town hall meeting, you go to the meeting because that's where they submit those concerns. And that's how you get the ball rolling in your community. I'm telling you how it go because I did it. I got all the way represented to be one of the the uh, delegates. Represented to be a delegate to go to the convention, right? And the guy who I was, who they voted, who I was running against, right? In that little meeting, they selected me, but then they called me a default because they claimed that I wasn't a citizen of Houston. For so many years, that that was all hallwish. I already knew that was that was discriminatory. But at that time, I think my father had passed, and when they had the meetings or whatever, I just wasn't in the mental state to even fight for it. Cause I already know I had my I had my badge and everything. Sure did. And that's how you can keep this momentum rolling. Okay. So let's go and let's hear. What else that Mr. Tremaine has to share with us that I'm going to share with you guys. But that's part one on what you can do to keep the momentum going, all right, in your neighborhood. And I think I'll probably go to the next episode. Stop with the hamster wheel of a police kill an unarmed black guy. We protest, we get distracted, we go back to normal, and then six months later it happens again. This is the last straw, but now it is time to act. We need investments in affordable housing. We need to make sure that there's a living wage. We need to make sure that the police are held accountable. We need to stop with the Band-Aid solutions. We need to fix the systemic problems that are happening in this country. We want to take you to Minneapolis. NBC BLK reporter Janelle Ross is there. Janelle, it's been a heck of a week of protests in Minneapolis, and they've turned dangerous and violent over many nights. What is the feeling on the ground right now today? 
Is there a sense of what people are going I think, through? I, I think that it, the climate here is quite different than perhaps it might seem on TV. To be frank, it's very, very calm. And uh, I'd say almost um, warm and um, uh, I guess inviting to those who would like to join um, the cause of uh, calling for increased police accountability. That being said, of course, Minneapolis has been through a lot in this one week. Um, and whatever America feels, I think Minneapolis is probably feeling two to threefold. Uh, however, I think one of the things that I keep hearing from people on the ground here is a real desire for people to take this situation seriously. I heard your earlier guest talking about the hamster wheel, the sort of recurrent cycle of someone dying, uh, there being some public outrage, some public outcry, and then the cycle starts all over again once we've forgotten about it. What I'm hearing from a lot of people on the ground here is a lot of concern about how seriously their sense that there may be some outside and uh, extremist forces um, that have sort of infiltrated protests, their sense that that's not being taken seriously. And then secondly, that there is a lot of attention being paid to the health and welfare of uh, designer stores and businesses, and perhaps not enough attention being paid here and elsewhere to the actual policies that govern police conduct. Janelle, let me ask you this. When we see images from Minneapolis and Minnesota, which is a very white state, and we see kind of a dividing line here. We have a black community that say they've been beleaguered and beat upon by the police. On the other hand, we see uh, more kumbaya kind of moments. The day after the fires, uh, black and white coming together to clean up the streets. In that uh, push for that kumbaya unity moment, uh, are we losing any of the steam and energy? Do activists and people on the ground uh, feel that the rage and anger that they feel from the death of George Floyd is being lost in this desire to already move forward? Absolutely. You hit it on the head. I have had multiple people say to me that as much as every human being may strive for peace and enjoy the calm of going about their daily lives, the problem is that normal uh, really was a condition in which people were being killed all the time, right? And there are basic questions about justice and accountability that are not being answered. I, I certainly have had several activists say to me that the sort of focus on let's get together and hold hands and have unity seems to be misplaced. Um, I think they would prefer to see people asking questions in their communities about what local use of force policies are, whether or not chokeholds are allowed by their police forces, what are the policies and procedures for dismissing a problem officer? What are the union contracts in their cities? I think the list goes on and on and on, but at a very bare minimum, I think that there is a lot of concern that in the sort of focus on let's come together and hold hands, which is sort of a reflexive, perhaps deep human need, that more important things might be lost. Janelle Ross, thank you so very much. Keep up the good work. We are back with our panel now. I want to ask you, Mandela, as a wise man once told me, there's no way to separate the roots of a tree from its leaves. There's no doubt that this country was founded on racist ideals. And while great progress has been made, the roots remain the same. Mandela, are white supremacist ideals and ingrained anti-blackness, the kind baked into every American institution, including policing, breakable.
can we actually snap out of the systemic nature of racism or is this just who and what we are? We have to snap out of it. If we don't snap out of it, we're going to be completely destroyed. Uh, this nation will implode if we don't snap out of uh, the white supremacist ideology that got us to the point of where we are. I want to remind people that things can actually get worse. Uh, it is my hope that they don't. It is my hope that people step up and recognize the moment and see the need for change. And when you use the tree, uh, root and tree analogy, I also want to, want to point out uh, for those who still subscribe to the uh, bad apple theory, with there just being a, a handful of cops, we have to think about the growing conditions that led to those bad apples, and that is the white supremacist ideology uh, that you talk about. So um, if we don't snap out of it, it will only be to our own peril. Nicole, the nature of what we're dealing with here, it's not just policing, it's healthcare, it's education, it's environment. We're segregated by our bodies, but the air that we breathe is also segregated. Do you believe in your heart of hearts, given all your experience and everything you understand about how this system works, do you think we can break out of it? Is there any way to move past it, move through it, change society in any real meaningful way? I would say that can and will are two different things. Yes, we absolutely can. We know how to do it. We know all of the resources that went into creating the inequalities that we see and experience. But do we have the will? You know, James Baldwin said that white people have to be willing to give up their whiteness. And I don't think that we have seen enough white Americans in power willing to do that. Um, you know, when we think about this police violence, police are the agents of the state who work most intimately in black communities, but they are the face of a much larger system of oppression that you just talked about. They are, uh, you know, black people are the most segregated people in terms of housing, in terms of school. We have the worst health effects. We have the highest poverty rates. We have the highest unemployment rates. Anything that you name, uh, we suffer from the worst. And that's because we are the descendants of those who were enslaved in this country. So do we have the will to actually do what's, what is necessary? I don't think so. But we certainly can if we choose. We just sent somebody to the moon again. Don, if we wanted to, to do something better, we could. Don, Don what, do you, what, do you, what do you think about that? And I also want to add, how much of that, that intimacy between police and the people and all the, the ways in which we're segregated, uh, but how much of what we experience day to day do you think is the result of, of unconscious bias, people meandering through life not realizing that they harbor anti-black sentiment, and how much of it is actual conscious racism, conscious anti-black sentiment? Um, I think it's not possible necessarily to quantify it uh, in percentages. Uh, I will say that it's both are absolutely at play um, every day. Um, people do not realize that they that they have these biases, and they're like I said, my my friends are really realizing it now, and it's really coming out now, and they're really understanding uh, it the impact of inaction, thinking that inaction, uh, thinking that because they're good people and they do good things during the day and they're nice to people, that that's actually enough to tear down something that uh, has been systematic and has been not only institutionalized, but it's, you know, it's codified in the articles of the creation of this country. We were never intended to participate in this with any sort of just justice or any sort of uh, equality. So it's going to be a fight and it's going to be a struggle and, and again, this moment that we're in right now that we got to very honestly 
and has been this confluence of all of these things coming together at the same time with a terrible uh, president and, and enablers around him who don't have the courage to stand up to him uh, at a time when you know people want to talk about looting but and the, on the other hand they don't want to talk about trillion dollars tax cut that went to the richest one percent of this country but let's have the holistic conversation about this really be honest about where we are and how we got here and if we can't do that and if things like this like nicole said if white people aren't willing powerful white people aren't willing to have these kinds of conversations and hold each other accountable to that and people who really hold these levers of power i don't know how this will change but this is absolutely the moment to impress upon them that it has to or as mustafa said i'm sorry as, as mandela said we're we're looking at we're looking at a very bad outcome. And and the riots happened in 92 after the trial and the officers were found. We still have three officers who haven't been charged and one who may be found not guilty. They may be acquitted. And that's when it jumped off in LA in 92. So yes, we, we may not be at the, 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 the greatest point of this yet. And that's terrifying. Mandela, you hold the levers of some power. You are the lieutenant governor of Wisconsin, which includes Milwaukee, which has uh, among the highest black male incarceration rates in the country. I, I want to ask you, what is next? Where do we go from here? And do you think that white America wants the change that many in black America actually want? And so that's the thing. I think a lot of people are waking up to a reality that they never had to experience. And if I can go back to the question that uh, you, you brought to Don, I think folks just have been able to go throughout their entire lives without ever having to worry or think about it. Uh, but on the policy front, there are so many proposals that have been brought up. But on the political front, there are still, like I said in the beginning, people who don't have to worry about it. And in my position, I think about uh, the issues that I'm expected to carry, the issues I will carry regardless, because they are important, whether it's LGBTQ issues, whether it's uh, women's right to choose, whether it's environmental issues, I carry those issues, they are important to me. But rarely is racial justice a part of that conversation. And what I feel that I can do, because we do have elections coming up, it's not just the presidential election, we have state legislative races uh, all across Wisconsin as well, we have other races going on. And from my position, I don't have to endorse anybody that doesn't take on racial justice. And that's what I plan to do. Like for people who are running for state representative, state senator, if they don't talk about racial justice, I'm not endorsing them because we have to build not just power, we have to build the, the policy infrastructure to make sure that these issues get addressed and brought to the table and talked about in a meaningful way. Thanks so much to our guest, Don Cheadle, Nicole Hannah-Jones, Lieutenant Governor Mandela Barnes. We want to keep hearing your voices. If you're black in America, please share with us why you're out rallying for George Floyd. Go to NBCNews.com slash your protest. Thank you again. NBCNews.com slash your protest. You can submit your pictures. You can submit your um, statement. Um, you also can go to boomfactortv at gmail.com and you can send me your testimony. Those that have literally been out there, foot soldiers, do the protest. I would love to hear from you. 
leave me a message and I can interject that on the program. Okay? This is Dr. D with the Boom Factor, and you was listening to a panel with Tremaine Lee. He has an awesome broadcast on NBC, but I usually just go straight to YouTube and get my information and I get the international news to look from the outside in because American news is all going to just show you what they want you to see. Okay. God bless. Have a wonderful day today. It is Friday. ago, a flame burned here when the Olympics came to Mexico City and the world was on fire. It was the deadliest year of the Vietnam War. Two American leaders were assassinated. Rebellion engulfed North America and Europe. And many lived in fear that the Cold War would ignite something far worse. So then here, the world came together, even as it was tearing at the seams. And the Mexico City Olympics were born of a violent and relentless year. to you that our country is challenged at home and abroad. It was Tet. The Viet Cong attacked every major city in South Vietnam. I shall not speak and I will not accept nomination of my party for another term as your president. Martin Luther King was shot and was killed tonight. All over America, black ghettos exploded in rage and grief. In Paris, there were 400 casualties among the demonstrators. Now let's go on to Chicago and let's win there. The boycott is on. If white people want to believe it, beautiful. If they don't, that's beautiful too. What would they have to do for you to go to Mexico? The boycott is still on. The boycott is still on. Russia and her Warsaw Pact allies have sent troops and tanks into Czechoslovakia, rebelling Mexico City. There's a statue on the campus of San Jose State University of two men who were part of the greatest track and field team ever assembled. At a games that changed the Olympics forever. Elsewhere on campus are reminders of just how much time has passed since 1968. Like the overgrown ruins of a track that was once home to a team and a movie. Smith was raised in Lemoore, California, the seventh of 12 kids who would spend mornings and weekends working in cotton and grape fields with their father. I was good at pain. You work in those cotton fields as a kid, uh, you will get used to pain. 
Not that you liked it, but you will certainly get used to it, and you have to endure that feeling. Smith's talents earned him an occasional break from the field. Dad told me, he said, boy, I'll let you go to this meet, but if you take second place, you'll be back in the fields next Saturday with the rest of your brothers and sisters. So that was certainly an incentive to never take second. to San Jose State, where his teammate was Lee Evans. As a boy, Evans had worked in the same cotton fields as Smith, and by 1966, they were the two biggest stars of a program that had come to be known as Speed City. Tom Rizzo is a very quiet, reserved guy, you know. He was two years ahead of me, so I was this sophomore kid trying to keep up with him. We always had a lot of fun. Half a century ago, Lee Evans could run a single lap around a track faster than anyone alive. He received two new knees last year, but his old ones had carried him to a 400-meter world record that stood for 20 years. Meanwhile, with his long, easy stride, Tommy Smith broke the 200-meter world record as a junior at San Jose. Smith begins to pour it on and forges to the front. He literally flies toward the tape. On occasion, Coach Bud Winter would race Smith and Evans against one another. No one has never passed me with 50 meters to go in a race. So I said to myself, if I beat him to 150, I want to beat this guy because I always have a good finish. Man, <laughs> at about 150, you know, I saw, saw a knee about this high. When it came down, he was eight meters in front of me. Tommy, no, he don't spend no time next to you. <laughs> Speed City became an object of fascination, luring journalists and camera crews from around the world. I prefer the 200 meters, though. Je préfère le 200 mètres à toutes les autres but for the athletes, especially the black athletes, a taste of fame didn't make them impervious to an empty stomach. We were hungry all the time, you know, because there was no money. My scholarship was uh, $85 a month, and my rent was $80, so I had $5 left over. Wow. That's what we went through back in the 60s. Smith enrolled in the ROTC. He was a self-described follower of rules, a mild-mannered social science major, and a graceful athlete. A contrast in every way to an arriving transfer from East Texas State. A young man who grew up in Harlem and swept into Speed City like a storm of swagger and fury. His name was John Carlos. He had this New York walk. Said, That's a cool walk that guy got, because I was in the straight guy, six feet four, the stick. And he said, I heard that uh, San Jose State had blown a lot of smoke about speed, but I came here to bring the fire. And I looked at him and I said, oh, this guy is bad. 
I don't look at myself as being cocky as much as I looked at myself as being assured as to who I was and what my ability was. Some guys, I would look at them and tell them, say, hey, man, make sure you be close to me so you be in the picture. I don't know if you've ever seen a rock coming at you at full speed in your face and you can't move. That's like being ready for John Collins. So either you have to get out of the way or outrun the rock. And uh, I had no intention of getting out of anybody's way. They had to run over me. But it wasn't the intimidating John Carlos or world record holder Tommy Smith who was the most commanding presence on campus. That distinction belonged to a six foot eight inch former San Jose State discus thrower and basketball player named Harry Edwards. I personally, as an individual, have applied for immediate acceptance into the Black Panther Party. Edwards sought to bring together athletes in the fight to end racial injustice. Among Edwards' early disciples were the Speed City trio of Tommy Smith, John Carlos, and Lee Evans, three of America's best sprinters who found themselves at the center of a blazing controversy after they promised to boycott the Mexico City Olympics. We're going to do what we're going to do, regardless of whether white folks believe us or not. We're not talking about a few medals. We're not talking about the Olympics. We're not out to destroy the United States and the Olympics. We're talking about human rights. As a student, Harry Edwards had seen firsthand the inequality between white and black athletes. Now teaching at his alma mater, Edwards wanted to bring together athletes to call attention to the discrimination felt by black Americans. It was called the Olympic Project for Human Rights. What was going on at San Jose State was going on at all of these so-called integrated schools. They had us in the locker room. We could go on the field, but we couldn't become head coach. We couldn't become a college professor. It never dawned on them that the athletes that they brought in might one day want to be the athletic director at their alma mater. You come in, you play football, and then you go back to wherever you came from. Make room for the next Negro. Harry is a courageous individual uh, that wanted to make change and was willing to sacrifice everything to make the change. So, you know, they looked at Harry as a villain, but then they looked at each and every one of us as a villain, like we wanted to disrupt the party, so to speak. In the year leading up to the Olympics, the most outspoken black athlete in America was Muhammad Ali. After refusing to serve in the Vietnam War, Ali was stripped of his heavyweight title belt. My intention is to box, to win a clean fight. But in war, the intention is to kill, 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 and continue killing innocent people. In June 1967, Jim Brown invited several top black athletes to Cleveland to offer Ali their support. I always considered myself a friend of Harry's and a compadre and that we were working towards the same ends. Alongside such established stars as Brown and Bill Russell was 20-year-old UCLA sophomore Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, then known as Lou Alcindor. Harry Edwards was a, a brilliant man who uh, kept us aware of what we needed to uh, protest. You know, there were things that we needed to complain about because we weren't being treated right. Dr. Edwards was great at pointing out what was going on and not letting the people who were, who were doing these things uh, escape. Seeing these influential black athletes band together, Edwards was inspired to a similar action, to bring national attention to the movement. His idea? A boycott of the Olympic Games. Being a student 
of sport and society, I began to think about that. What could we do? What would we do if we had an opportunity to leverage sport as a vehicle for change? In February 1968, Alcindor announced he would not try out for the Olympic team. Someone that popular and that great as an athlete to take the risk to come with us and to put his career in jeopardy when he has such a, you know, budding, great career. It was amazing for me, so I had a great admiration. With the best collegiate basketball player in the country boycotting the games, the Olympic Project for Human Rights received the attention they had sought. We're going to do what we're going to do, regardless of whether white folks believe us or not. You see what I'm saying? And that's boycott. I'm saying that we're going to do what is in the interest of black people, whatever it is. Let me say that I absolutely support this boycott. Dr. King was about nonviolence and quoting scripture. Harry Edwards wasn't quoting scripture. But Harry Edwards, I did think, had the right idea. He was trying to raise the level of consciousness about black athletes and whether they were getting appropriate rewards and respect. None of us probably had heard of Harry Edwards until that year. The word boycott created a hell of a stir. Perhaps just as surprising as Alcindor's boycott was the fact that the all-white Harvard rowing team, led by Paul Hoffman, contributed to the movement. When athletes started talking about the Olympics and combining them with the ideals, of certainly the ideals of racial equality, that connection was pretty easy for us to make, and it seemed to be one avenue where we could do something that was beyond just rowing. The Harvard University crew team invited me to come and speak to the student body and explain why we were doing the things we were doing and saying the things we were doing. What we decided to do after our press conference with Harry Edwards was simply write letters to each and every member of the team as they were selected. The letters were basically, welcome to the team. We're enclosing some material about the Olympic project because our black teammates have raised some very important issues and we think there should be a dialogue about these. And that caused a stir. The cause was uniting athletes from different backgrounds in different parts of the country. But in 1968, many believed the Olympic Project for Human Rights to be a divisive effort led by disruptive men. For some, there will be consequences for supporting the movement. Ahead, as the athletes find their voice, the proposed boycott threatens to derail U.S. dominance at the Olympics. for more than half a century. He was the first high schooler to break four minutes in the mile. On this day, he's being honored at the U.S. Track and Field Championships, a celebration of the world record he set in 1967. A new world record in the mile run. Ryan is the last American to be the world's fastest miler. He was big. Jim Ryan was big. He had that kind of well-scrubbed, all-American look about him. He was a huge deal. People could identify with this kid from Kansas and an American who was then setting 
records and became a world record holder, it was just a great opportunity to represent your country and, and be a role model for them. It's here for Jim Ryan, the champion. In 1968, Ryan's clean-cut image offered a sharp contrast to the perceived disruptors who were threatening to boycott the Mexico City Olympics. I was hoping it wouldn't happen. I realized it was a right they had at the same time. You know, I needed to, as everyone did at that point, focus on what you were doing because you were there for a purpose uh, and you wanted to make sure when your moment came that you were ready to give your best performance. Ryan wasn't alone in hoping the boycott would go away. Prominent black athletes shared his concern about missing the Olympics. Let's say that in 1972, I don't make the team. Suppose I break a leg. Suppose something happens to me. So I, I have to be in the here and now. I made it up in my mind that if I was good enough to make an Olympic team, and my dream was to make an Olympic team, I wasn't going to let nobody interfere with my dream. The proposed boycott sought to highlight the inequality black Americans faced at home. But the Olympic Project for Human Rights also outlined several sports-specific goals like the inclusion of more black coaches and officials in the United States Olympic Committee, the expulsion of South Africa and Southern Rhodesia from the Olympics due to apartheid policies, and the removal of IOC President Avery Brundage. He is totally unacceptable as the head of the Olympic Commission, uh, and we want him removed. The most important one was the fact that Avery Brundage was the chairman of the Olympic Committee. And he was the person who told the Jewish athletes in 1936 that they couldn't compete in the Berlin Olympics because it was going to make Hitler angry. In 1936, Brundage was the president of the U.S. Olympic Committee. He later became chairman of the IOC in 1952. Targeting him was a bold step for the movement. I don't think any of these boys would be foolish enough to demonstrate at the Olympic Games. And I think if they do, they'll be promptly sent home. I'm not a boy. I'm a man. I'm an American. Army Captain Mel Pinder was serving in the 82nd Airborne Division in the Mekong Delta when the Army brought him home from Vietnam in 1967 so that he could train for the Olympics. You don't call us boys because we're black? You don't call men b boys? I mean, they did that in the slavery days. I know I'm not a boy because I fought for my country. Even as Olympic trials got underway in June, the boycott dominated the conversation. What would they have to do for you to go to Mexico? The boycott is still on. The boycott is still on. The consequences of a boycott were magnified by the potential of a track and field team that was starting to look like it could be the greatest in Olympic history. Trials began in Los Angeles, where several athletes wore pins in support of the Olympic Project for Human Rights. For Tommy Smith and John Carlos, controversy followed. In the 200 meters, the two outspoken runners advanced to the next round of trials, despite being given the most disadvantageous lanes. They knew that Tommy Smith was not a front runner. They took him and put him out in lane eight. They knew that I was injured. They put me in lane one. So their attitude was to knock us out. Race officials stated the draw was random, but Smith didn't buy it. In 1968, Olympic trials for the men were held in two parts. 
Ten weeks after the field was narrowed in Los Angeles, the team reconvened in Echo Summit, California, in the Sierra Nevada mountains. There, athletes would encounter a similar elevation to what they would face in Mexico City. The top three finishers in each event would make the Olympic team. The track was built just for trials. And for the athletes, it was unlike anywhere they had ever competed before. This is what's left of the old track. We'd run by this tree. I remember this grandfather tree here. Dick Fosbury was here in 1968. He was a young high jumper who was turning heads. And that year, he forever changed his event. The style for the high jump that was used by 95% of the athletes was called the Western Roller, the Straddle Technique. I was a failure with the style that everybody else used. At a high school meet in 1963, Fosbury decided to try something new. I was the worst guy in the entire uh, district, and I knew I had to do something different. With his signature flop, Fosbury was the third and final Olympic qualifier at Echo Summit. Between jumps, he had an up-close look at the competition. The start of the 200 meters was back on the corner in the trees. You'd hear the gun come off, and then you couldn't see anything until they came out of the trees. In the 200 meters, John Carlos emerged from the forest ahead of Tommy Smith in the fastest time ever run. Lee Evans broke the world record in the quarter mile. 22-year-old Bob Beeman won the long jump by nearly half a foot. And in the 1500, Jim Ryan fought through the rare air to qualify for his second Olympics. It was a roster simmering with potential and also a group that had successfully lobbied for change. By the time the U.S. team was named, some of the demands of the Olympic Project for Human Rights had been met. South Africa and Southern Rhodesia were banned from the Games, and there would be black coaches on the Olympic team that year. Those Games, coupled with the lack of unanimous support among black athletes, led Harry Edwards to call off the boycott that had been promised for months. And the conversation shifted to raising awareness in Mexico City. I wonder if I could ask you, first of all, is the boycott itself dead now? Is that finished? I, I, I would say the boycott is off. Now, what about other things that might happen in Mexico City? All I can say is uh, you can expect almost anything. While Mexico City today is a vibrant modern capital of more than 20 million people, awarding the 1968 Olympics to Mexico City was a bold and controversial decision. In many eyes, Mexico was still a third world country. On arrival, the United States team gets a typical, full-blooded Mexican bienvenido. And from Chico to the champions, a big ole. La imagen de México en general, antes de los Juegos, era una imagen de gente irresponsable, floja, y de que dormía la siesta con un gran sombrero recargado en un nopal. Mexico, you know, are they going to be able to organize an event this magnitude? So we were kind of hurt because of that. And it was a great opportunity to show what we Mexicans can do. 
It would be the first time the games were held in a Spanish-speaking country. Mexico was a young democracy with a booming economy. It was called the Mexican miracle. The 60s was a good decade for the Mexican people. For the first time, universities were booming. But there were many Mexicans who felt the Mexican miracle had left them behind. That sentiment helped lead to massive student protests throughout the summer of 1968. The government so far has done little, if anything, to settle the student problem. It has simply tried to clamp a lid on and keep everything out of sight. But by threatening to disrupt the Olympic Games, the students themselves may bring harsher measures against them. Nine miles north of Mexico City's Olympic Stadium is the neighborhood of Talate Loco. In the plaza of three cultures, which lies next to Aztec ruins more than 700 years old. On this day, the Mexican flag here flies at half mast, commemorating the September 2017 earthquake that reduced to rubble the 500 year old bell tower of the Church of Santiago. The plaza is home to centuries of history. But just 50 years ago, it was the site of one of Mexico's most tragic days. October 2nd, 1968, just 10 days before the games, roughly 8,000 demonstrators assembled in the plaza. Students in Mexico City began a new protest this afternoon. They're demanding the immediate release of other students jailed after rioting earlier this year. Mexico's president, Gustavo Diaz Ordaz, had grown concerned that the student protest movement was a threat to Mexico's ability to host a civilized Olympics. There were all sorts of rumors going around, floating around, that something is going to happen in Tlatelolco. What actually happened at Tlatelolco has been debated for decades. But declassified documents first released in 1998 told this story. Army troops advanced through the Aztec ruins and surrounded the demonstrators. Those troops didn't know that members of a separate elite army unit called the Presidential General Staff took elevated positions in nearby buildings. Acting on orders from President Gustavo Diaz Ordaz, the gunmen opened fire on both protesters and troops below. The ground troops, who thought the protesters had opened fire, responded with lethal force. But now the troops are coming, you can hear what it sounds like. According to those documents, it was a calculated plan orchestrated to make it appear that civilians had incited the violence and provide President Diaz Ordaz with a justifiable reason to quiet the protest. They're letting go with just about everything they have. The other troops have swept across the plaza. They killed whoever, they didn't care, and that justified the government to occupy and detain and, and crush the movement. The government initially reported that 20 people died that day. Later, accounts suggested numbers in the hundreds. Meanwhile, a newly created police force called the Olympica Brigada detained more than a thousand of the protesters. And the government painted a sanitized version of recent events as visitors began arriving for the games. As you drove in, 
from the airport to the Olympic Village, you noticed all these shacks along the highway gleaming in the sun. They had all just been whitewashed. And I remember the same whitewash on the cobblestones in the plaza. We kind of scraped away some of it, and it was brown underneath. And of course, what it was was either the blood stains of where they had been murdered. And uh, their blood was still there. I declare open the Olympic Games of Mexico, celebrating the 19th Olympiad of the modern era. The Olympics began 10 days later, without mention of the massacre at Tolate Loco. While that ugly subtext was largely ignored, the games themselves would otherwise exceed expectations for the host nation. And it opened with a gesture that was ahead of its time when hurdler Enriqueta Basilio became the first woman to light the Olympic cauldron. It was because of a woman, and we were proud of that. We were showing everybody that in Mexico, women had the same chances as men. We were so proud. I still get kind of a goosebumps, you know, around my body. Remember those moments. another proud moment for the host nation. He was just 17 years old and had grown up just 10 blocks from the Olympic pool. The decided underdog, Munoz, won the 200-meter breaststroke. It was the first gold medal at the Olympic Games for a Mexican athlete. I felt that we needed that. We were doing great. We did great. flags. Did you see the Mexican flag in the middle, the Soviet Union and the American flag right next to it? The two superpowers right next to Mexico, so that makes us very proud. All Mexicans are very proud because of that. There were many reasons for Mexicans to be proud of their Olympics. The event was welcoming and well-organized. The sight of a woman lighting the cauldron provided a progressive and iconic image. And in Felipe Munoz, they had a homegrown Olympic champion. But the pressure for Mexico to prove it could deliver such triumphs was at the very root of the tragedy at Tolate Loco 10 days earlier. The games would be a success, but the price had been steep. people have been anxiously awaiting here at the Olympic Stadium in Mexico City has arrived. The final of the men's 100 meters. Every Olympics answers an age-old question. Who is the fastest man alive? There's the gun, there's the start. Watch lanes one and three, Reed and Hines. In 1968, it was Jim Hines. It appears to be Jim Hines of the United States. The 100 meters was the first event in which a black American was expected to win gold. Even though he was against the boycott, Jim Hines had made it clear that he would not shake the hand of IOC President Avery Brundage if Brundage was the one handing out the 100 meter medals. I was one of the athletes who had agreed to not shake hands with Brundage. We didn't want him to put the medals around us. Brundage did not hand out the 100-meter medals as planned, 
it was early confirmation that sport and politics would intersect at the games. Vera Chesovska was one of Czechoslovakia's most popular athletes. Four years earlier, the gymnast had won the individual all-around title at the Tokyo Olympics. In Mexico City, the 26-year-old repeated as all-around champion. There's no doubt in the minds of this audience who is the reigning queen of gymnastics. It's Vera Kaslavska. But Chasovska's performance in 1968 had even more significance because of what she had left behind in Czechoslovakia. For most of 1968, a conflict simmered between Chasovska's home country and the neighboring Soviet Union. Czechoslovakian leader Alexander Dubček had promoted the decentralization of the economy and lifted restrictions on the media, travel, and free speech. It was an awakening to individual freedoms that came to be known as the Prague Spring, and it did not sit well with Moscow, where it was seen as an affront to their power and influence in the region. NBC News presents a special report on the invasion of Czechoslovakia. On August 20th, less than two months before the start of the Mexico City Olympics, the Soviet Union invaded Czechoslovakia. Russia and her Warsaw Pact allies have sent troops and tanks to put an end to the democratization of the nation. Milena Dukova, a Czechoslovakian diver, was 16 years old at the time. I had to walk between tanks and machine guns and saw things I never wanted to see before or after or ever. I was afraid, so it was scary. In addition to being one of Czechoslovakia's most beloved athletes, Cheslovska was also an outspoken critic of Soviet-style communism and the Soviet invasion of her country, which made her a target. To avoid arrest, Cheslovska left her home in Prague and trained for the Olympics in secret in the mountain town of Schumperk. Among Czeslavska's chief Soviet competitors was Natalia Kuchinskaya. The fans in Mexico City sympathized with the Czechoslovakian athletes. Porque veíamos las imágenes de los checoslovacos enfrentándose sin armas a los tanques rusos. En la ceremonia de inauguración, el, la segunda delegación más aplaudida fue Checoslovaquia. We were definitely treated very special, especially Vera. They really loved her. She was a great athlete. She was beautiful. She was blonde. She was just their darling. Two days after Cheslovska won all-around gold, her success continued in the individual apparatus finals. After she won gold on vault and bars, a sweep of the individual gold medals was not out of the question. Já vlastně jsem v tom momentu byla reprezentantem všech nás Čechoslováků pokořených, tak já jsem věděla, já jsem věděla, že nemůžu jinak než vyhrát. A dnes je dna byla, dnes je dna všeho byla Věra Česlávská. 
For the Soviet Union, the most successful and influential program in the world, a Cheslovska suite would have been simply unacceptable. On the balance beam, a controversial judging decision put Kuchinskaya in first place, leaving Cheslovska with silver. Vlastně tak nějak zapracovali, protože už se mi to zdálo příliš mnoho, že by jedna sportovkyně měla všech pět zlatých. Takže tam udělali takový kompromis a tu zlatou medaili dali té sovětské závodnici. Immediately afterward, on floor, it appeared that Cheslovska had one goal. But judges retroactively adjusted preliminary scores of her Soviet competitor, Larissa Petrick, which led to a tie for first. The official have corrected the previous score of Larissa Petrick and have announced that it is a tie for the gold medal. This is, without question, one of the most dramatic moments of this Olympiad. Both times on the podium, when the Soviet anthem played, Cheslovska looked away. Now this is a highly emotional moment. We're going to hear the Russian national anthem and watch Vera Kozlovska. Když stoupá na stožár vítězů sovětská vlajka, tak se mi vlastně tak nějak mě defiloval zpětně před očima všechno, co se stalo toho 21. srpna. Já jsem prostě toho byla plná jako celá naše země a by the end of the games, Cheslovska had won six medals, four of them gold. It was the greatest individual performance by a female gymnast in that era. The very next day, Cheslovska married fellow Olympian Joseph Odlozil in Mexico City. Mexicans poured in by the thousands to catch a glimpse of Cheslovska. Los casó el arzobispo de México y fue declarada, digamos, en ese momento, la novia de México. Cheslovska's protest shined a light on the Soviet Union, pushing past its borders, a sliver of the Cold War playing out in Mexico City. For the first time in U.S. television history, the Olympics were available live and in color in 1968. American audiences were treated to one of the finest U.S. team performances. The United States topped the medal table with gold medals in boxing, there it is. diving, equestrian, and sailing. No team won more than the American swimmers as the U.S. collected 21 gold medals, 52 overall. The United States makes a clean sweep and 16-year-old Debbie Meyer became the first female swimmer to win three individual gold medals at an Olympic Games. In basketball, a group of unheralded college players pulled off one of the upsets of the games. The U.S. men went undefeated against much older and experienced teams, defeating Yugoslavia in the final. Leading the way was the team's youngest player, Trinidad State Junior College Center, Spencer Haywood, who had been against the idea of a boycott from the beginning. There's the end of the game, there it goes. So the United States get their seventh Olympic medal. When you have all that strife going on in your hometown and you're away in another country, you only have each other to lean on. And we are leaning on the flag. 
We don't know anything about race. We don't know anything about color. We just know one thing, red, white, and blue. We want America to win. And that's what the Olympics is all about. The Americans prevailed without the National Player of the Year and Lou Alcindor. I didn't regret my choice. I was glad I made the choice I did, and I was ready to live with it. But, you know, I think that what I did accomplish was raising people's consciousness, and to me that's worth more than a gold medal. Tommy Smith and John Carlos had been two of the most prominent athletes at the center of the Olympic Project for Human Rights and the threat of an Olympic boycott. But on October 16, 1968, they were in Mexico City, preparing for the semifinals of the 200 meters. John Carlos advanced after a strong challenge from Australian Peter Norman. While Smith's Olympics nearly ended before the final. Four steps after the race, I had a devastating pain in the left groin. And I thought I had been shot because it was a piercing feeling. And I said, oh, man, I mean, why did they shoot me there? I looked down, there was no blood, so I knew I had pulled the muscle. Tommy limped away after the semifinal. I went down to the warm-up track. I said, Tommy, are you okay? He winked at me. Then I looked at John. John was laying on his back, just talking to everybody, you know. Uh, I said, oh, okay. Tommy got John in his pocket. He don't even know it. Tommy Smith having a groin muscle pull? Fake. Artificial. He didn't fool me in the least bit. Tommy, from my perspective, wanted to play a head game. Smith had just two hours to recover for the final. He would line up in lane three with Carlos just to his outside in lane four. Smith was the world record holder. But Carlos had defeated Smith at Olympic trials. This is Tommy Smith. He strained a groin muscle in the semifinal. Whether he's ready or not, nobody really knows. All the other athletes were warming up, but I could not warm up because I was afraid if I warm up, I might pull the muscle and let me pull it coming out of the blocks. It's a good start. And Carlos, as usual, has burst out of the blocks. John Carlos always has a great start. Tommy Smith running pretty well so far. I was in fourth place mid-turn. I was in trouble. It's John Carlos right now. It's Carlos and Smith. Yeah, pull the clock. All the way out. And here comes Tommy Smith. You are tuning in to 1968, a documentary of what we experiencing now in 2020. Back in 1968, humanity rights, civil rights erupted with the assassination of Martin Luther King and J.F. Kennedy. And so now... This is just a little that I'm sharing for those that want to understand or want to even tap into all the areas, not just from policing policies that are killing our, the black race on the streets. 
globally, but even through sports. Um, matter of fact, this whole month, I'm going to tap into sports, business, education. We're, gonna, we're going to gain some, 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 some history and some knowledge, and so we can have a better conversation with each other as we cross each other's path from this day forward where our world, our states, our communities could be become better than what is happening now. Okay? So, just tune into the next episode. We will continue this documentary, which uh, Serena Williams is the narrative for this 1968 documentary, uh, Human Rights and History of Black Americans. And I love how she's integrating the other countries that are, that are, were experiencing protests and violence and deaths and massacres during the same time. In 1968, I was three years old. Yes, I was three years old. Okay, God bless. But on October 16, 1968, they were in Mexico City, preparing for the semifinals of the 200 meters. John Carlos advanced after a strong challenge from Australian Peter Norman. While Smith's Olympics nearly ended before the final. Four steps after the race, I had a devastating pain in the left groin. And I thought I had been shot because it was a piercing feeling. And I said, oh. Man, I mean, why did they shoot me there? I looked down, there was no blood, so I knew I had pulled muscle. Tommy limped away after the semifinal. I went down to the warm-up track. I said, Tommy, are you okay? He winked at me. Then I looked at John. John was laying on his back, just talking to everybody, you know. I said, oh, okay. Tommy got John in his pocket. He don't even know it. Tommy Smith having a groin muscle pull, fake, artificial. He didn't fool me in the least bit. Tommy, from my perspective, wanted to play a hit game. Smith had just two hours to recover for the final. He would line up in lane three with Carlos just to his outside in lane four. Smith was the world record holder, but Carlos had defeated Smith at Olympic trials. This is Tommy Smith. He strained a groin muscle in the semifinal. Whether he's ready or not, nobody really knows. All the other athletes were warming up, but I could not warm up because I was afraid if I warm up, I might pull the muscle. Let me pull it coming out of the blocks. It's a good start. And Carlos, as usual, has burst out of the blocks. John Carlos always has a great start. Tommy Smith running pretty well so far. I was in fourth place mid-turn. I was in trouble. It's John Carlos right now. It's Carlos and Smith. Yeah, pull the clock. All the way out. And here comes Tommy Smith. Smith has got it. With his hands in the air. 
John Carlos. Tommy Smith won gold in world record time. Australian Peter Norman finished second. John Carlos took bronze. After racing, first thing and foremost that jumped to my mind is now we can get busy. Let's get it on. That was my attitude. Let's do what I came here to do. While Smith and Carlos knew they wanted to make a statement on the podium, they found an unlikely ally joining their cause at the last minute. I was probably more happy for Peter Norman that day than I was for Tommy Smith or John Carlos. And he is a white guy that ran 20 flat. I ain't never seen no white guy run like that. Tommy and I started making the suggestion as to what we were gonna do. Peter was looking on and he kind of inquired, what are you guys doing? And he said, man, we're getting ready to make a statement. And I said, would you like to win an Olympic project for human rights button? And he said, yeah, and he's kind of reaching for mine. And I had to smack him on his hand. Oh, I'll get you one. You can't have this one. Paul Hoffman, one of the Harvard rowers who had been an early supporter of the Olympic project for human rights, happened to be seated nearby with the wives of Smith and Carlos. Peter Norman looks up at me and he said, hey, mate, you got another one of those buttons. I said, you going to wear it out there? He said, yeah. I said, well, we're out there. Here, I have mine. And I handed it to him. Peter Norman was a man's man. And I always have respect and admiration for him as long as I live and after that. With Norman on their side, Smith and Carlos settled on their own symbols. They wore black socks with no shoes, signifying endemic poverty at home. Beads around Carlos's neck, reflecting the history of lynching in America. Smith wore a black scarf while Carlos wore a black t-shirt, covering the USA on his race uniform. And earlier that day, Tommy Smith's wife had brought one pair of black leather gloves to the stadium. Smith took the right, Carlos the left. As the anthem began, they raised their fists together. of the black athletes banding together, making a stand against a system that does not represent black people. To put the glove on to let them know that, yes, we're here representing America, we're here representing the Olympics, but we're here more folk representing black people and black pride. The boos were about as profound as the silence was when we raised our fists and bowed our heads in prayer. And they're both devastating. Do you think the Olympic Games is the right place to do this kind of thing? You ought to use this as a world stage. We used this so the whole world could see the poverty 
of the black man in America. And you might say that you've got it all. You've got publicity, you've got medals, you've also got martyrdom as well. What do you say to that? I can't eat that. And the kids around my block, they grew up with me. They can't eat it. And the kids that's going to grow up after them, they can't eat publicity. They can't eat gold medals, as Tommy Smith said. All we ask for is an equal chance to be a human being. The Black Power disciples, Tommy Smith and John Carlos, the Olympic 200 meters gold and bronze medalists had been suspended by the United States Olympic Committee and given 48 hours to leave Mexico. I had said that if there were any demonstrations at the Olympic Games by anyone, the participants would be sent home. To discourage further protests, IOC President Avery Brundage enlisted Jesse Owens to deliver a message to a gathering of American track and field athletes. Then they said, oh, we gotta find somebody to tame these guys. Then they said, oh, well, let's go find Jesse Owens. They found Jesse, cleaned him up, put him in the soup, stuck some money in his pocket, and gave him a script to read. To me, politics has no part to play on the field of strife of competition. I've never believed it. Owens was a hero to many in that room. At the 1936 Olympics, Owens' four gold medals were a powerful rebuke to the Nazi vision for the Berlin Olympics. But Owens also represented a cautionary tale. He never made a living as a track athlete and turned to stunts like competing against racehorses to get by. Owens told the athletes in Mexico City that if they used the Olympics to make a statement, they wouldn't be able to get jobs when they returned home. He came in and said, but we wasn't getting no jobs. And, and I made it clear, Jesse, we don't have no jobs now, and it made it clear to him also. Jesse, anybody heard from you from 1936 until today, and you're here as a result of what we're doing today. If we hadn't we done anything, you'd still be buried. So we kind of booed Jesse out of the room. He had tears, but he was on the wrong side at the wrong time. The day after the Owens meeting, Smith and Carlos were sent home. Newsman tried to get comment from Lee Evans, the sprinter. There have been rumors that Evans is sympathetic to the protesters. ABC's Ray Falk couldn't get any comment a few either from the wife of sprinter John Carlos. Carlos personally told Newsman to keep away. I'm pretty pissed off already with a lot of white people. So leave me alone, okay? I'm asking you the last time. Next man come up and put a camera in my face. Uh, speak up in my face, I'm going to knock him down and jump on him, man. Yeah? <laughs> now, believe me, I'm telling you. If you know what's good, go out and see if you can talk to one of the coaches. Just leave me alone. All right? Two days after the 200 meters, Lee Evans set a world record and led a U.S. sweep of the 400. On the podium, all three men wore black berets in support of the Black Panther Party. However, when the anthem began, the men removed their hats. Evans would later say that his protests made enemies on both sides. While many white people were upset about the beret, many black people were mad that he took it off. <laughs> he was an Olympic gold medalist and returned home feeling overlooked and unappreciated. Well, for, for me, it was a mix, you know, because, oh, how can I do what Tommy and John did? Oh, you know, you didn't get kicked off the team. And so I had to tell guys, if you want to get kicked off the team, you should have made the team and did it yourself. 
So it, it, was, it, was, it wasn't easy for me. Are you saying now that the action you took? The goal of the Olympic Project for Human Rights had been to bring awareness to racial injustice. What began as a small student movement at San Jose State earned the attention of the watching world in Mexico City. The 1968 Mexico City Olympics delivered several enduring images. A woman lighting the cauldron, the defiant protest of a Czech gymnast, and the silent, powerful gesture of two American sprinters. Tommy Smith and John Carlos were sent home for their protests, but their medals added to the tally for a U.S. track and field team that would prove to be the greatest ever assembled. It's Tyus. Wyoming Tyus has defended her gold medal. So Al Lauder has done it for the fourth consecutive time, Olympic champion in the discus with a new Olympic record. Our congratulations to you. Thank you very much, Al. He's got good speed. He's got good position. He made it. Situated more than 7,300 feet above sea level, Mexico City remains the highest point of elevation in which the summer games have ever taken place. Thin air means less wind resistance, and sprinters thrive. In nine sprint events, eight world records were broken seven by American athletes. But distance runners not used to the altitude suffered. Altitude was a problem. Altitude was going to be the great uh, unknown, so to speak. Jim Ryan grew up in the cornfields of Kansas, where the elevation was just over 1,000 feet. His principal rival in the 1500, Kip Kano, had spent his entire life in the Kenyan Highlands at an elevation more than 5,000 feet higher. Kipchoge Kino, can Jim Ryan catch him? Kipchoge Kino racing for the wire. Jim Ryan in second spot. It's going to be Kipchoge Kino's race, and what a block win on his face. Jim Ryan finishes in second spot. I finished much faster than anybody ever thought a silver runner could run. And to me, it still remains as one of my best races ever. In the field events, Dick Fosbury captivated the crowd, winning high jump gold with his revolutionary flop. Osprey has a rather interesting approach and there's the back of the pool. When we first saw him, we said, oh man, what a nutcase here <laughs> with this guy. I've seen some unorthodox styles of jumping before and none of them panned out. Here he comes, bends around the bar up. Over! He's over! And the stadium just erupted. People were celebrating and they'd never seen this before and it was really just an amazing experience. His victory was a revelation. Every high jump gold medal after 1972 has been won with the Fosbury flop. But the most astonishing performance in Mexico City and one of the greatest feats in the history of sports came in the men's long jump from a precocious 22-year-old from Queens, New York. I was always the youngster that was coming along that if he ever hit the board right, God knows what he might do. I made sure that I had all the ingredients ready. I had cooked them up, put them all together, so my mind was actually set to, to do what I had to do at that moment. Bob was a 9-3 sprinter. 
he could run with me or John or Lee, so I knew that something had to happen. Most long jumpers take a few jumps to find their groove, but Beeman needed only one. Nineteen sixty Olympic champion Ralph Boston immediately recognized this significance. He was like, "It's over." I said, well, "What's over?" It's over. The long jump, Bob just just jumped out the pit. Beeman had jumped so far that the electronic measuring system could not reach his mark. They had to go to Ace Hardware <laughs> and look for the measuring tape <laughs> to to actually do it the manual way. Then all of a sudden, I heard over the speaker, "Ladies and gentlemen, the world record has just been crushed by Bob Beeman." Bob Beeman with that tremendous jump, 29 feet, 2 and 1 half inches, broke the existing world record by 1 foot 9 and 3 quarter inches. There was a lot of commotion. I was enjoying in that moment, I think I was between time and space. Ralph Boston, the bronze medalist, stood barefoot. Another podium, another silent protest amid athletic success. Beeman, though, is not remembered for his socks, but for his leap. It was an astonishing jump that broke the world record by nearly two feet. As one writer put it, it was as if the first astronaut had skipped past the moon and landed on Mars. They have been scientists, they have been psychologists. In terms of coming to some kind of conclusion, how that happened, sometimes there's no conclusion other than he did it. The last American individual gold medal in Mexico City went to a punishing boxer named George Foreman. Headlines at home had been dominated by Carlos and Smith's podium protest. So the image of a victorious heavyweight fighter waving a small American flag was seen by some as a rebuttal of the perceived un-American actions of other black athletes in Mexico City. I'd never been in armed forces. First chance I had to wear red, white, and blue. And I want the whole world to know that, look, this is my country. Look at, look at what I've done. And I want to spit it out. I wish I'd had two flags at that time. George, he didn't go out there with the flag to denounce anyone. George went out there with pride, the fact that he won, and he won for America. The 16 days in Mexico City were thrilling and unforgettable, but also transformative. In a year when the world was on fire, the game shined a light on conflict raging at home and abroad, and produced the era's defining image of change. The Olympic cauldron was extinguished on October 27th. The games would never be the same. For the past several summers, Tommy Smith has held camps for young athletes. How you doing, youngster? 
This day, the Tommy Smith Youth Track Meet is being run just outside the nation's capital. Meanwhile, John Carlos serves as an ambassador for USA Track and Field. 50 years ago, days like these would have been impossible for them to imagine. In the wake of their protests, Smith and Carlos were outcasts. I just want to get away from the uh, reporters and so forth right now and get me some rest. My wife is very tired also. I'm sure she is. I'm sure Tommy and his wife are very tired also. How about this afternoon or later on? You think we can set something up? No, not, not this afternoon. Yeah. Not this afternoon. I, I went through all deal all week. And all four of us went through all deal all week. And I don't care to talk and I don't believe they care to talk now for a while. In the press, they were vilified. Brent Musburger, then a columnist for the Chicago American, called them black-skinned stormtroopers, saying their protest was juvenile and ignoble. And in the mail, a barrage of harassing letters, racist taunts, and death threats. Most of phone calls and letters, you will die if you continue or niggas are cheap anyway, so your debt would be easily paid. I was afraid to walk in the house. Uh, I was afraid to go to school. I was just afraid. Returning home, a whole new life, a whole new thing. Opportunities on the track were few. Job offers even fewer. Both fathers, Smith and Carlos, struggled to support their families. Couldn't find a job, I was sitting at home. All the promises before I went to Mexico City, all the promises, plethora of promises, fell through. Nobody called me, nobody knocked on my door to say, Tommy, we're here to help you. No friends, nothing. I was just sitting there, me and a hungry wife and a hungry little son. For John Carlos, the struggle tore his family apart. In 1977, his first wife, Kim, took her own life. My wife sacrificed herself as a result of what was happening to us, how the government did us, how everybody shut down us. You know when you got a lack of money in your household when you're a woman? You know what it creates? It creates friction. And my wife got to the point where she felt like the only way I can get away from this is to take my life. As Carlos and Smith struggled in the years after 1968, they saw George Foreman become heavyweight champion of the world. Down goes Frazier! Down goes Frazier! And later earn a fortune selling his namesake grills. Great tasting, healthier food in minutes. For his conquest and flag waving in Mexico City, Foreman received an invitation to the White House. In contrast to Smith and Carlos, he was portrayed as a grateful champion, an image Foreman embraced. They have a thing running around, they call, uh, what is it? Oh yeah, black power, you know, great. This is good, it's, you know, you said black power, but I got another thing I want to introduce to all of you. I'll put this down for a minute. It's like this, people power. <laughs> John Carlos and Tommy Smith, they had gone through college and a lot of college kids had a lot of things they were aware of that we were not. So when they got up on the platform and did the clinch fists and all of that, it was just another event until I saw him. I looked out my window in the Olympic Village and they were escorting him off the village. That broke my heart. 
A lot of black people came up from what Tommy Smith, John Carlson, Peter Norman did. Then near one of them sent a dime. Not so much to sent a dime for me, but for my kids. Help them get a meal. Because you knew I couldn't do it. But then George sent me a letter, brought tears to my eyes. And he said to my brother, John Collins, he said, from your brother, George Farmer, the biggest and the baddest cowboy you know, I want to do what I can do to help you, John. And when he sent it, man, I looked at it, I said, I can't take this. George was the best dude in the world with a big heart. He had it then, he have it now. For Carlos and Smith, a hard truth since Mexico City is that they haven't always had each other to lean on. Their relationship is complicated. We have different attitudes about situations. He's not afraid to say anything, anytime, anywhere to anybody. I'm just the opposite. One dispute that has lingered stems from Carlos's insistence that he let Smith win. Anyone can tell you, he said, man, Carlos won a whole bunch of medals, but he would never go home with him. He'd give them to the girls. I made the decision in my mind that I was going to let Tommy have this race. You know, races don't mean nothing to me. The medals don't mean nothing to me. And it means everything to him. John sometimes says that he run because he was born to run, or he run because that's what he does. Not so much to get the medal. I'm almost the opposite. I run to win and give me my medal. And we have to be that way because if we change it, we'll be living a lie. And I do not want to live a lie. And uh, I don't think John does either. Whatever drives them apart, the gravity of what they did together inevitably brings them back in orbit of one another. We're honored to have here the legendary Tommy Smith and John Carlos here today. It took almost half a century, but Smith and Carlos finally got their invitation to the White House at the request of the first black president. The, the, the powerful silent protest uh, in the 1968 games was controversial, but it woke folks up and created greater opportunity uh, for those that followed. A short walk from the White House on the National Mall among monuments to founding fathers and fallen soldiers is the Museum of African American History and Culture. It opened in 2016 and the sports exhibit resides on the third floor. It begins in 1968. Welcome to your home. Thank you, Dr. Bunch. Thank good you, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Always good to see you. What a treat. You know, this has become the Instagram moment in the museum. Everybody wants to make sure that they have their picture taken in front of this statue. I thought this was one of the most important moments of the 20th century, and I wanted it here. Everybody's trying to be you. Handsome young man. Oh, oh John? <laughs> <laughs> it's a short list of living people who can visit a statue of themselves. For Tommy Smith and John Carlos, what began at San Jose State now has a permanent home in the nation's capital. They stood silently together for 80 seconds. 50 years later, their voice is still heard. Wow. Every Olympic.
Mexico City delivered performances that wouldn't be outdone for generations. And protests that will be remembered. The, the, the powerful silent protest uh, in the 1968 games was controversial, but it woke folks up and created greater opportunity uh, for those that follow. A short walk from the White House on the National Mall among monuments to founding fathers and fallen soldiers is the Museum of African American History and Culture. It opened in 2016 and the sports exhibit resides on the third floor. It begins in 1968. Welcome to your home. Thank you, Dr. Bunch. Thank good you, thank you. Thank you, good to see you. Always good to see you. What a treat, you know. This has become the Instagram moment in the museum. Everybody wants to make sure that they have their picture taken in front of this statue. I thought this was one of the most important moments of the 20th century, and I wanted it here. Everybody's trying to be you. Handsome young man. Oh, oh John? <laughs> it's a short list of living people who can visit a statue of themselves for tommy smith and john carlos what began at san jose state now has a permanent home in the nation's capital they stood silently together for 80 seconds 50 years later their voice is still heard Every Olympics has its legacy. Mexico City delivered performances that wouldn't be outdone for generations. And protests that will be remembered even longer. After the games, Vera Cheslovska, the Czech gymnast who dominated rivals from the invading Soviet Union, said, We all tried hard to win in Mexico because it would turn the eyes of the world on our unfortunate country. But after the Soviet occupation, the new government labeled her an unhealthy influence, and she was barred from competing. But when communism fell in Czechoslovakia in 1989, she was among the leaders to address a crowd of more than 300,000 in the same Prague Square that Soviet tanks rolled through 21 years earlier. <laughs> Czeslavska died in 2016. Felipe Munoz became a shining example of why the Olympics came to a place like Mexico City. When the 17-year-old became a hometown star and his life was forever changed, Munoz later became the head of the Mexican Olympic Committee and a congressman. The massacre at Tolate Loco is also part of Mexico City's Olympic legacy. When President Gustavo Diaz Ordaz crushed a student protest to ensure the Olympics would go off smoothly 10 days later. Munoz recalls a conversation he had with President Diaz Ordaz after the games. The Mexican president invited me to his house and they asked him, hey, Mr. President, how bad the Tlatelolco, you know? He got up and he said, let me tell you something expression in Mexico is preferible que se derrame la gota a que te explote el vaso. You have to take the tough decision so the country would explode. 
He said, you're too young to, to understand this, but eventually you will. For many in the United States, though, the games are best remembered for what happened in track and field. Of course, one image stands out from the rest. A protest now remembered on the campus where a movement started. At San Jose State, the silver medal platform remains empty, so visitors can stand alongside Tommy Smith and John Carlos, just as Peter Norman did that night. They could have not raised the fist. They could have stood out there and accepted their medals to their own personal glory, but those two giants of men on that day told the world exactly where they stood and in a, in a way told the world exactly what they should be doing about it too. Norman died of a heart attack in 2006. Smith and Carlos were pallbearers at the funeral. 50 years ago, IOC President Avery Brundage declared that political statements had no place in the Olympics. Smith and Carlos raised their fists anyway and paid a price. I think the Olympics have to take a good look at themselves through the International Olympic Committee and the various national committees. Because to pretend that the Olympic Games are sports and not politics is a falsity. Even now, the sight of athletes making political statements results in intense controversy. But there is no debate that the legacy of Tommy Smith and John Carlos echoes with every athlete who seeks to find their voice. There's a direct line of ascent between the athletes who struggle for dignity and respect in the 1960s. Ali, Smith and Carlos, Bill Russell, Jim Brown, Kurt Flood, Arthur Ashe, and Tony Dungy hoisting the Lombardi Trophy. There's a direct line of ascent between those connections and Barack Obama being elected to the White House. Because if America doesn't believe that blacks have the capability, the ability, the intellectual political acuity to win a Super Bowl, they most certainly are not going to elect him to run the country. So did it have an impact? Absolutely. When we see LeBron James make a statement, when we see Colin Kaepernick make a statement, when we see Jerry Jones taking a knee, <laughs> arm in arm with his players, they're standing on the shoulders of giants. Two in particular. Yes. Tommy Smith yes. and John Carlos. Yes. Here's the first. always um, watch you can go to YouTube and um, type in 1968 and it's narrative it's by Sh- Sharina Williams which was an awesome awesome documentary and um, what made it 
um, historic point pertaining to the Olympics was in 1968. But I believe, uh, and I mean the protests, um, the black Americans fight started way before then. Uh, We could even go back to Jackie Robinson with baseball. Um, So this particular area, I believe that she took time out to correlate what happened back then in 1968 in the protests and um, the defaming of humanity towards black Americans, uh, even starting at with the sports and when they took a stand, they also, when they returned home, they felt the repercussion. And I believe that uh, we have to even pray and cover our activists that's on the front line now because we know it's going to be, the enemy going to try to send forth a backlash. But nah, it's too many it's too many voices. It's too many demonstrations globally. It just didn't stick at one city this time. This is globally. So I pray y'all, you guys had a chance to enjoy that. Um, that was a lot of information for me, myself, to, like, I I learned um, something new also with the Czechoslovakia, um, the young lady, and her protests when Russia invaded their country. And so um, you still learn something new every day. And I just, I don't know everything. I know I can't, I'm not able to articulate everything. But when certain movements of momentums began, momentum begins and, and, and nationwide attention and this is my program, and it is affecting me as an individual, as a single black woman in America. Uh, yeah, it, it affected me because, like I stated, when all this came about, I have a black son, I have nephews, I have grandsons, you know, I have cousins, you know, I have uncles. Um, my dad. He he fought in that war uh, in 19, was the Vietnam War? Okay, so I was born in the midst of all that transition of the civil rights movement. So it really touches home. I really didn't know too much except for what I have learned in the past couple of 10 years that I've been on this earth because... Just certain things wasn't taught to us, you know? And so uh, I just pray that we take this time throughout this year to really awaken our souls and our spiritual insight and just get to learn more about who you are. You know, because as, as as long as you learn about who you are, you don't have to worry about defining yourself by somebody else telling you 
what you should be, <laughs> you know, and that esteem will be fortified and strong, and no one can jerk your chain or tell you anything. You'll be a leader, a catalyst, all right? Okay, you guys, so just enjoy the rest of your day. I'm going to try to I'm marinating on all this stuff that I learned within these these two hours of time and um, getting some things together and seeing how Father want me to present certain stuff. I know I'm going to have to go live soon, but I just want to be right, you know. I don't want to just throw stuff out there. Um, I also posted for individuals call, like I say, Google your your zip code and find out who your representative, who is your councilman, and your matter of fact, when you put the zip code in, it's going to give you the list, but you know what I had sit here and watch? Get there and read through. Don't just call because they're going to have a whole script for you if you want to leave a message or you can send an email. All right? But I want you to take your time before you call and say, I want you to push this and push that. I need for you guys to really read that list that they have on the side of their name, all right? And make sure, because I was reading something about the lynching act, that they're asking people to call to to um, invoke the house to um, pass so it can go to the president, right? Well... Almost to the 20th to the 24th article within that bill, they have the <laughs> the right supremacy information in there and hate crimes and it is it's talking about how it will fall underneath that act to prosecute them, but you got to watch how you read it. So I'm going to have to go over it again, but I just want you guys to take your time and read through it, okay? Read through it, and then you sing your, you sign the petition, or you call. It's best for you to call, because they have it logged. And I've seen a lot, it's almost like to a million or whatever, but we need more than that because we know in each community, it's more than a million people in that community. All right, so let me go. I am out for today. God bless you. Enjoy your weekend. Um, You can always follow me at Boom Factor TV on Instagram, um, Twitter. Uh, Twitter is Boom Factor TV. That's That's Twitter. My Instagram is hashtag Y-A-L-D-O-N-I-E-L, okay? You can go to Facebook, and it's facebook.com slash boom factor, okay? Um, And just stay connected, and until, and subscribe. Go to YouTube. I do have Boom Factor TV on YouTube, and subscribe so when I begin to post my videos, you'll be able to get the alert and you can stay up date to what we are sharing out here. Okay? All right. So thank you again. God bless you.